Confirmation. Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short stories, Parker's Back and The Artificial Nigger. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 1. Speaking anthropologically, we still don't quite know what the church is all about or what Israel, uh, the, the Israel of the uh, Hebrew Scriptures was all about, nor do we know what sacraments are all about quite yet. Perhaps we're learning slowly to appreciate uh, what Israel, church, and sacraments might mean in the larger picture of the human uh, adventure. Sacrament is a loaded word, but what I've suggested we do is set it, uh, is juxtapose it to the sacrificial system and to suggest that uh, beginning with the first Passover, the sacramental system is an attempt to take us human beings in a different direction from the sacrificial system. And up until this very day, those systems have been uh, 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 overlapping each other, so that in any one given instance, uh, one event may be may have both sacrificial and sacramental features to it. Uh, the Eucharist is still regarded by the church as a sacrifice of the man, so that uh, up to this very moment, there the uh, the two are overlapping. But what I'm suggesting is we if we separate them out in our minds and see them as as two different operations going in two different directions. And the fact that they're overlapping may be due to the fact that we're we're moving from one to the other. Just to say a word about sacraments for a second. Uh, in the early church, there were only two, baptism and uh, Eucharist, or the table fellowship. Uh, but there were, uh, the others uh, came into the picture for various reasons. Uh, by, the time, by the time of the Middle Ages, there were, there were many, and uh, there were uh, uh, disputes over how many there were, in fact. Uh, Peter Damien, a 11th century uh, church uh, figure, suggested there were 12. And uh, Hugh, Hugh of St. Victor, a contemporary of his, suggested, or actually not quite a contemporary of his, uh, in the next century, suggested that there were 30 sacraments. So there was the question about how many there were uh, varied. And finally, the church do- doctrinally settled on seven. Uh, but I think we might take a hint from these earlier uh, gropings uh, to uh, allow ourselves to understand that sacraments... Uh, that perhaps we have, uh, the church would hold up to us uh, two or four or seven, but really what's, what we're being asked to, uh, to regard is a, is a way of being which, which uh, would seize upon various opportunities uh, to express itself. It doesn't have to be, uh, to fall necessary. In a way, the church should, having an official small number it may be a way of providing the minimum daily requirement, so to speak, the minimum lifetime requirement, rather than uh, eliminating other possibilities. Uh, so what I suggest is that we are all we're, we we come as beginners to this uh, question of understanding what Israel was, what church is, and what sacraments might be. And to uh, and Gerard's uh, anthropological work, I think, is a helpful. Uh, a helpful context for that exploration. We sh- we showed the film Babette's Feast, and then we spent a week talking about uh, that 
short story and that play, and and then uh, we we uh, spent a couple of weeks talking about Flannery O'Connor's *The Displaced Person*, which was a sacrificial, uh, 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 anatomy of a sacrifice, whereas Babette was the anatomy of a sacrament. And then last week we saw *Baghdad Cafe*, a a sort of Babette's feast uh, told uh, somewhat or depicted uh, in the film somewhat the way one might expect that Flannery O'Connor might depict it. Um, and the cafe, and, and over the course of the last few months, we've been looking for opportunities to see a parable for the church or a, a symbol for the church or whatnot. And the cafe, this little uh, way station in the middle of the desert, cafe, the, the Baghdad Cafe, is a, is a metaphor uh, or microcosm of the church, or at least we could regard it as that, if, if that's the question we ask of the of the of the film. <clears throat> as Jasmine arrives on the scene, having just uh, heard her call and had her vision, uh, and escaped from the Egyptian context of her uh, her life up until then, and left uh, the Pharaoh. Uh, in the desert, and, and uh, started her march. You see the, what I'm suggesting, the par parallels there. Uh, Jasmine comes, uh, receives the call on the road and goes into this uh, little uh, cafe, and slowly, very much the way Babette does, slowly, unobtrusively, uh, begins to, uh, to bring... Uh, peace and mystery and meaning and magic uh, and miracle into that place. And it's a miracle for, for all concerned. Everyone uh, slowly, even against their own resistances, everyone slowly warms up to what, uh, to, to what Jasmine means and is doing there, except for the tattoo artist. The tattoo artist in this story is the only one who uh, finds Jasmine's presence uh, um, to be uh, uh, to be unwanted. Finally, and uh, the tattoo artist uh, says at one point that she's leaving. Her business has fallen off considerably. One uh, attention is not drawn to that in the story, but one suspects that's part of the problem. And she's leaving, and when she's asked why she's leaving. She is told that she's leaving because there's too much harmony. So she leaves. Now, Parker's Back is a Flannery O'Connor short story which uses uh, tattoo as its major metaphor. And so I want to uh, make that the connecting link between Baghdad Cafe and Parker's Back. The tattoo artist uh, seems to thrive in periods of confusion and anxiety, even in Baghdad Cafe, you see. So she leaves because her business is is uh, drying up. Things are the she she profits from the anxiety and the confusion. And uh, when that and, and so then one, one would ask, well, uh, who who would profit from confusion and anxiety? Uh, uh, I perhaps I do. I don't know, but uh, so anyway, someone who profits from anxiety and confusion and finds Babette, the arrival of Babette on the scene, 
a uh, something unwanted. So, um, so I want to make that connection and start from there. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her letters, uh, mentions to one of her correspondents that uh, her good friend Carolyn Gordon, the novelist Carolyn Gordon, uh, had written to her, and uh, in Flannery O'Connor's words, thought it unique that I had succeeded in dramatizing a heresy. Speaking of the short story Parker's Back. So we could take heresy as the approach to the story, and uh, it is, in a way, a story about heresy. The, 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 the sort of central heresy of all time, and the, uh, if you were going to say that uh, you might, the case could be made for the fact there's only one heresy, and that's idolatry. Uh, but clearly, it's idolatry that uh, is the heresy that this story is talking about. And perhaps one that's, uh, that's dealt with in a, in a modern way, uh, the, the uh, modern variant in idolatry evades detection because it is so fickle. Uh, it doesn't uh, stay on one idolized object for very long. It moves on right away. Parker in this story discovers that each tattoo only uh, is satisfying only for about a month, and he has to go get another one. So. One of the things that keeps modern versions of idolatry from being detectable is the fact that it is constantly on the move, uh, searching for a new uh, object for its reverence. In that regard, I happened to be reading uh, the Thursday paper, and this was uh, in uh, Jim Fain's editorial in uh, the Press Democrat on Thursday. He's a syndicated columnist for the Cox News Service. And his article started this way. The, the, the body of the article is not of concern to us, but I thought it was interesting the way he started it. Dateline, Washington. And he says, this is a town of revolving truths. Bursts of total certainty succeed and often contradict each other on a weekly schedule. Their impermanence detracts not a whit from the reverence paid them. I thought that was uh, uh, another version of the modern of the modern problem, grabbing at straws. Well, I want to suggest, so I think it is a story about a heresy, the heresy of idolatry. But I think we're going to get more out of this story if we come to it with another question. Now, as you know, all the things we've been doing, short stories, poems, plays, films, and so on, all the things we've been doing, we've been uh, uh, coming to them with a question. We're not simply passively asking ourselves, what's this mean? We, we, we ask of it, uh, of, the, of the story or whatever it is. We ask of it that it, that it tell us something we need to know. And so, the, so, so uh, it's important what question we bring to it. I would suggest that the question we should pose before this short story is a question of sacrament. And, and specifically, uh, a sacrament that has gotten too little attention of late, seems to me, and that is the sacrament of confirmation. And so let me try to explore that a little bit before we get into the short story. The sacrament of confirmation is one of these sacraments that uh, emerged in the Christian movement because of certain shifts in things. Early in the Christian movement, baptism was an adult uh, event preceded by uh, careful catechization uh, and uh, learning and uh, adoption of uh, cr Christian premises and so on and so forth. But increasingly, baptism became a, uh, an infant sacrament performed shortly after birth. And so 
there was a sense that uh, th there was no formal adult entry into the Christian communion, uh, so something had to be done for that, so, uh, done, done about that. So uh, confirmation was uh, was inserted as a, as a sacrament, which is really the sort of the second shoe dropping from the baptismal sacrament, uh, but one which becomes a conscious uh, one for the per per person involved. Uh, confirmation has some social functions that uh, I want to just put aside for right now, and maybe we'll explore them later. Uh, but to focus for a second on its spiritual, personal uh, functions, though this would probably come as a surprise to uh, many in the modern Western world, we are, I think, spiritual creatures. And unless uh, blocked by uh, taboos or subtle systems of denial, spiritual stirrings start to happen in us. Something happens uh, of a spiritual nature to us. And again, unless it's repressed or denied, it tends to grow in its significance and its scope. There have been times when the social environment was much more hospitable to these spiritual stirrings than it is now. So that when they began, when these spiritual stirrings began, we had some, uh, some the, the, the surrounding culture came to our aid in understanding what was going on with us. Metaphor may be uh, sexual puberty. Uh, some stirring begins to happen, and, and a lot depends on how informed one is uh, before and during this stirring about its, its nature and meaning and even mystery. And if one is left uninformed or is informed in some crude way, uh, then one responds to these promptings uh, in, in a correspondingly crude and uninformed way. So the question would be, uh, to, to use the sexual metaphor uh, for a second as a para parallel, uh, if, uh, if puberty begins to happen and uh, all we have for dealing with it is a kind of uh, locker room rumor about uh, what it all means, then the outcome is predictable. If we have uh, Dante's La Vita Nuova, uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, Edmund's, Edna St. Vincent Millay's uh, sonnets, etc., uh, etc., et we might have another experience of it. But if all we have is the kind of locker room nonsense, then uh, we respond that way. We don't know any better. And I'm suggesting that, there's a, that there is a, uh, there's a spiritual version of that, which uh, in some way the, doc, the uh, sacrament of confirmation is an attempt to uh, address. Confirmation is a sacrament that should be taking place in the mid-teens, at a time, by the way, when both the spiritual and the sexual awakenings often occur simultaneously. So, what happens if the spiritual stirrings begin and my surrounding culture has provided me with no sense of, uh, no forewarning that they're going to begin and no sense of what they mean once they do begin, uh, and what it has provided me with is a, is a, is a, uh, cl a cluster of little um, prejudices uh, 
with regard to the, to the very institution that might provide me with some insight into this, uh, namely the church. Uh, the church itself has laid itself open to these prejudice, prejudices by, by being such, a, such an empty shadow of its possible self. But in any case, uh, these stirrings begin to happen. The culture provides me almost no help with them and encourages me to regard with scorn uh, that part of the tradition that might be of use to me. So that's, the, that's, I think, the situation that's being depicted in Flannery O'Connor's Parker's Back. This is a, this is a story, not, this is not a story about O.E. Parker or his wife, Sarah Ruth. And as, as a matter of fact, at the end of the story, it's inconclusive, uh, it's enigmatic, uh, one that we don't know exactly what to make of the end of the story because it's not really a story about them at all. It's a story about the, about the spiritual situation in the modern world. We've talked about Eucharist. Uh, we've ca talked about reconciliation. These, are, these are, tend to be regarded as standard sacraments in some of the uh, churches these days, but uh, we haven't really talked about confirmation. I, and as I look out on the American landscape, these days, I see that as the most glaring sacramental failure. Take an opportunity, a time or two, maybe in the course of going through this short story, to talk about the drug scene, for instance, uh, the, uh, the violence, uh, the confusion, uh, the, the uh, casual uh, sexual experimentation, all of the things that uh, we wring our hands about on one level, but really, uh, seen at another level, it's, these are groping attempts to deal, one, can, one might say, groping attempts to deal with some spiritual stirrings going on in a culture that provides absolutely no guidance about that. So I want to read the first op the opening uh, few sentences of the story and then do a few other things before we actually get into the story. This is how it opens. Parker's wife was sitting on the front porch floor snapping beans. Parker was sitting on the step some distance away watching her sullenly. She was plain, plain. The skin on her face was thin and drawn as tight as the, un the skin of an onion and her eyes were gray and sharp like the points of two ice picks. Parker understood why he had married her. He couldn't have got her any other way, but he couldn't understand why he stayed with her now. She was pregnant, and pregnant women were not his favorite kind. Nevertheless, he stayed as if she had him conjured. He was puzzled and ashamed of himself. The house they rented sat alone save for a single tall pecan tree on a high embankment overlooking a highway. I want to come back to that sentence later on. But before we go on, let me just mention this thing about her being pregnant. That is mentioned in the story a couple of times. It has absolutely nothing to do with the story. And therefore, it's important because uh, Flannery O'Connor doesn't need it in order to, to have her story move along. She has inserted it for some reason. Attention is never drawn to it except, except we're told that it's a fact. So we have to, I think, think of pregnancy as one of the metaphors that's, that's over this story. Now, if you'll allow me to, say, to do this with it, pregnancy is, is a, is, after the conception, 
something has been set in motion that is coming to term. So there is a kind of pregnancy involves this uh, inevitable uh, uh, coming to fruition process. And uh, I think the uh, I think the locale for that in the story is in O.E. Parker. The story is about. So it begins by reference to the fact that his wife is pregnant, but the pregnancy that w- that we'll be watching will be a pregnancy in him. Uh, so it goes on. He sometimes supposed that she had married him because she meant to save him. At other times, he had a suspicion that she actually liked everything she said she didn't. He could account for her one way or another. It was himself he could not understand. So either she was, she was uh, trying to save him, or she liked him the way he was. And he couldn't quite figure out which way which it was. Now, understand about Flannery O'Connor that she tells stories about uh, people who don't know what they're doing. But she's trying to tell a story uh, that will inform us so we, we can't attribute any kind of uh, significant consciousness to Sarah Ruth, that's O.E. Parker's wife. We can't contribute any con- special consciousness to her or to him, uh, but we can see how they are, the, the effect they're having upon one another. He says of her, he couldn't figure out whether she was trying to save him or whether she liked him the way he was. Uh, Carl Rogers and Martin Buber had a... Uh, had a controversy, somewhere, a dialogue, I should call it probably, uh, about something that touches on this. Uh, Carl Rogers uh, said that one must offer the counselee uh, unconditional acceptance. And Buber uh, suggested that there is a difference between acceptance and confirmation. Interesting that he uses that term. There's a difference between acceptance and confirmation. And Buber says what you're trying to do is to confirm somebody and not simply to accept them. So Buber put it this way. He said, you must accept the other person as a person, but be willing, if need be, to wrestle with him against himself. Uh, So you create a situation where uh, the person involved probably can't tell whether... Uh, are you trying to change him, or are you liking the way he is? <laughs> you see, it's that, it's that uh, mysterious combination. Uh, Buber says, I see his whole polarity, and I see how the worst in him and the best in him are dependent upon one another. Buber says, you can't, you can't come out and uh, start condemning right away, because the thing you condemn will be uh, will be intimately related to the thing you're trying to to uh, to, to bring into full uh, awareness I want to quote the the way uh, Walker Percy's little book uh, entitled lost in the cosmos uh, begins the title of the book uh, is very it's the longest title of, of a book that I, I know of because its real title is this lost in the cosmos the last self-help book or the strange case of the self, yourself, the ghost which haunts the cosmos, or how you can survive in the cosmos about which you know more and more while knowing less and less about yourself. This, despite 
10,000 self-help books, 100,000 psychotherapists, and 100 million fundamentalist Christians? Or, why is it that of all the billions and billions of strange, strange objects in the cosmos, novas, quasars, pulsars, black holes, you are beyond doubt the strangest? Or, why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is 6,000 6, light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life? Or, how is it possible for the man who designed Voyager 19, <laughs> I'm particularly fond of this, this one, this is all very much like Flannery O'Connor, but this one is particularly like Flannery O'Connor. Or, how is it possible for the man who designed Voyager 19, which arrived at Titania, a satellite of Uranus, three seconds off schedule and a hundred yards off course after a flight of six years, to be one of the most screwed up creatures in California? <laughs> so that's the title of the book. <laughs> the Gospels have destroyed the system that used to keep us sane. Gospels have undercut the whole, all of the, uh, the, uh, the sacrificial system for keeping cultural co coherence uh, operating, and the cultural apparatus has, has uh, increasingly been compromised and, uh, and, and doesn't uh, contain us anymore. So we're floating free, bouncing around. What we have failed to discover, so in, in a sense, the Gospels and, the, and the, the spirit of the Gospels, which is in the John and I context, the paraclete, uh, have been just working slowly like termites on the, uh, on the cultural foundation. And we've thought all along that they were down there supporting it. <laughs> In fact, they've been like termites eating it away. Oh, what, what we should have been doing, instead of building extra stories onto the house, what we should have been doing uh, is uh, discovering new laying new foundations, and the new foundations, I think, are, uh, are sacraments. And I think that, that the, once we get a better anthropological perspective on what all this might mean, uh, we'll turn to the sacraments with new care and attention. Uh, one of the um, writers I came, came upon was a man named B.R. Brinkman, who wrote about sacraments. He says this, sacramental man, if there are any, sacramental man through his feelings and verbalizing, can come to terms with himself and his world. He may well be in a state that a logical guarantee attaching to his every experience of the kind may only be a luxury. That's a kind of awkward sentence, but the point of it is that he may not be able to put into words or, or ideas or concepts what it is that's making this sacramental uh, reality for him coherent. But then, the, and then he says finally, at the same time, the stronger and more reassured he becomes, the more he can take up again the problems of his religious existence. Now that's very in interesting because he says uh, sacraments allow you to take up the problem of your religious existence. Now most people think they, allow, they solve it. Most people think that the purpose of sacraments is to solve the problem of religious existence. Uh, but Brinkman says the purpose of sacraments is to, is to uh, give you the context for dealing with the problems of religious life, for facing the problem 
In other words, sacraments are the place where you come to terms with them. They don't solve them. And he says that the key to sacramental consciousness is what he calls structured imagination. If we were to ask uh, in the abstract, what happens to a creature in a, in, uh, a, a culture that is as, as spiritually bankrupt I mean, I don't mean to be hard on our culture. I mean, it's true of all of them. I mean, ours is spiritually bankrupt in part because the Gospels have been eating away at the structures. So uh, how, how, do you, how do you characterize that? Anyway, uh, if, one comes, if one experiences spiritual stirrings in a culture that provides absolutely no resources for comprehending that and uh, addressing it, maturely. What happens? Well, if, well, that's the abstract question. The narrative answer is this story. So I think this is the story of what happened, not to O.E. Parker, but to untold numbers of modern people. Flannery O'Connor is simply telling a kind of exaggerated story, but it's really the story about the world we live in. So Parker had decided uh, he he would never get uh, married, tied, tied up legally, he says. Uh, but then something happened one day that changed all that. And what happened was that his truck broke down, which is in itself a, 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 a metaphor for a, a, a certain point in one's existence when things don't, aren't going exactly right. See? So the truck, it all begins with the truck breaking down. And he pulls off the road and uh, opens the hood and begins to study the motor. Now, Parker had an extra sense which, which informed him any time a woman was looking at him. And, he, and he, this sense immediately stirred, and he realizes somewhere there must be a woman watching him. <laughs> he couldn't tell where she was, but for her benefit, he decided to, uh, uh, to uh, make a little scene. So uh, suddenly, Parker began to jump up and down and fling his hand about as if he had mashed it in the machinery. He doubled over and held his hand close to his chest. God damn it, he hollered. Jesus Christ in hell. Jesus God Almighty damn. God damn it to hell. He went on, flinging out the same few oaths over and over as loud as he could. Without warning, a terrible bristly claw slammed the side of his face and he fell backwards on the hood of the truck. You don't talk no filth here, a voice close to him shrilled. Parker's vision was so blurred that for an instant he thought he had been attacked by some creature from above, a giant hawk-eyed eagle wielding a hoary weapon. As his, as his sight cleared, he saw before him a tall, raw-boned girl with a broom. Well, the Sacrament of Confirmation uh, involves, where it's still carried out, involves a slap in the face. Uh, the usually the bishop or whoever it is that's doing this slaps the confirmant in the face as a way of saying uh, you are an adult now. Uh, you can expect some difficulties. This is not going to come easy. Uh, uh, a new phase is set in. You're not a child anymore. Now, Parker admittedly, because he's one of us, is a hard nut to crack. So he doesn't get the polite ceremonial slap on the face. 
he gets his broom in the side of the face, <laughs> which he, which feels to him like a terrible bristly claw slamming into the side of his face. So you see, I'm not only imposing, I, I don't think it's, I'm just imposing this confirmation image on the story. I think Flannery O'Connor is playing around with it. Uh, so the slap seals, or in this case, sets in motion the confirmation process. I hurt my hand, he said. I hurt my hand. He was so incensed that he forgot he hadn't hurt his hand. My hand may be broke, he growled, although his voice was still unsteady. Let me see it, the girl demanded. There was no mark on the palm, and she took the hand and turned it over. Now, see what Flannery O'Connor's doing here? There's no mark on the palm. Part of understanding these stories is uh, understanding the whole, all the images that are part of Flannery O'Connor's background. But the mark on the palm would be something like the stigmata, some sense that this is a marked one, that this is uh, one who has already had the imprint. You see, the, uh, the other feature of the sacrament of confirmation actually its central feature, is indelibility. Uh, some mark that cannot be erased. Sacrament of Confirmation is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, sacrament, not like uh, some others. So that it, uh, it, it is designed to leave an indelible mark on the soul, so that one, uh, it's, it stays. And it is indelible in the sense that, see, in the sacraments we say, uh, like in marriage till death do us part, or in or in the sacrament of uh, religious vocation, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's permanent and forever, uh, and the sacrament of confirmation, indelible mark, all of those, as we now know, uh, are permanent if they're permanent. That is to say, that, that if the sacrament, if it really works as a sacrament, it in fact makes something uh, irrevocable and permanent. Now, not all, not all the sacraments have sacramental consequences. Uh, but the goal of the sacrament is to do something irrevocable and to leave an imprint that's indelible. Uh, that's getting ahead of the story a little bit, but but it came up. So um, so he said, I hurt my hand. She looks, and there's no mark in the palm. So she turns it over. Her own hand was dry and hot and rough, and Parker felt himself jolted back to life by her touch. He looked more closely at her. I don't want nothing to do with this one, he thought. So just by holding his hand, suddenly he feels something stirring in him. Now when, when something is stirring spiritually in me, I need an external uh, occasion, occasion often, to, to put me in touch with it. I need an outer a corollary to what's going on inside, else I might even not realize what's going on inside. So puberty may happen without me really becoming very conscious of it until I see this, you know, the girl in the third row. And then I think, well, wait a minute. And then something of consequence starts to happen. Likewise, 
something may be going on in me of a spiritual nature, which I may not be able to come to grips with at all until I have an outer corollary that connects with it somehow. And here you have a little bit of both of those happening with Parker and this girl. He seems jolted to life by her. Now, this is a far cry from what happens to Dante on the streets of Florence with Beatrice. But it is a, but it's a, a descendant of the same, uh, or, or a distant relative of the same experience. It's just one that's less informed about the mystery of life. So no mark on the palm, she turns it over. The girl's sharp eyes peered at the back of the stubby reddish hand she held. Now, I want to, before I show what's on that, what's on his hand and arm are, are tattoos, of course. But before I read the tattoos, I want to skip ahead and read something below. After she takes a look at it, Parker says to her, I got most of my other ones in foreign parts, Parker said. These here I mostly got in the United States. I got my first one when I was only 15 year old. Now, when Flannery O'Connor says, I got most of these in the United States, that's a way of saying, uh, this is the kind of stuff you pick up. This is the ambient cultural environment in the United States. These are the kind, of, this is what you pick up just by, you know, walking around in modern America. This is the kind of stuff you get. You don't get the stigmata. You get this other stuff. So, uh, she turned the hand over. There, emblazoned in red and blue, was a tattooed eagle perched on a cannon. And everything begins from there. That was his first tattoo. We'll come back to that. But um, a tattooed eagle perched on a cannon, a symbol of pride and power. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff you pick up. If you just, if something starts to stir in you and you don't have Teresa of Avila, you see, or St. John of the Cross or St. Francis uh, as, as part of your cultural environment, but all you have is what's happening in American popular culture, then it gets confirmed in the form of the eagle and the cannon. Parker's sleeve was rolled to the elbow. Above the eagle, a serpent was coiled about a shield. And in the spaces between the eagle and the serpent, there were hearts, some with arrows through them. Above the serpent, there was a, a spread hand of cards. Every space on the skin of Parker's arm, from wrist to elbow, was covered in some loud design. Every space was filled with a loud design. The girl gazed at this with an almost stupefied smile of shock, as if she had accidentally grasped a poisonous snake and she dropped the hand. All of this is a way of saying, I think, that he's stuck with the ambient mythology, so that when something starts to happen in him, all he has available is the stock responses that his popular culture provide him with. Now, this is the heart of the story right here. We go back and find out how it all began. Parker was 14. That's the age at which uh, we expect the first stirrings to begin. And everything depends, you see, when it starts to stir at 14, what's the environment? See, what's the environment? Ask yourself about the, uh, modern America. What is the environment 14-year-olds are in? 
And uh, when a stirring starts to happen in them, which will inevitably be connected to their sexual awakening, to be part and parcel of the sexual awakening, it's, the, it's when all of that energy, is the, the, the psyche, so to speak, is flooded with all of that energy. And it's the, it's the moment when spiritual life begins and the moment when sexual life begins. They're not, they are not fundamentally separated from one another. But it is a moment of, of, of great delicacy for each of them. So everything depends on how well informed they are before it happens and on what kind of resources they have available to them when it happens, right? Okay. So we would say to Flannery O'Connor, Flannery, what happens when that happens in modern America? And she said, well, let me tell you a story. Parker was 14 when he saw a man at a fair tattooed from head to foot, except for his loins, which were girded with a panther's hide. The man's skin was patterned in what seemed from Parker's distance he was near the back of the tent standing on a bench, what seemed from his distance to be a single intricate design of brilliant color. The man was tall and sturdy, moved about on the platform, flexing his muscles so that the arabesque of men and beasts and flowers on his skin appeared to have a subtle motion of its own. Parker was filled with emotion lifted up as some people are when the flag passes. He was a boy whose mouth habitually hung open. He was heavy and earnest, as ordinary as a loaf of bread. So look at this situation. He is this ordinary kid in a spiritually barren and bankrupt environment. But something in him is stirring. And it's awaiting the external corollary. It's awaiting something out there. You know, the, 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 the mystics say deep speaks to deep. Well, but when this thing starts to happen, something out there will get connected with it. It's awaiting an external corollary. Well, this is, this is Parker. And the first extraordinary, sort of awesome figure, he sees something out of the ordinary to him. He's this strange tattooed man, and he's filled with emotion. However, whatever it is that makes that connection, there is enough correlation between the external and the internal, however crudely correlated they are. There's enough correlation between them so that uh, it can be redeemed within that metaphor. That's not to say that's the best of all worlds to have the awakening uh, occur in, but it, it can be redeemed. Well, anyway, let me go back to this. A number of features here. First of all, he is girded like John the Baptist. He has a panther skin, but it's the the images of John the Baptist are striking. And John the Baptist is the forerunner, you see. So there is something here which is has potential, crude though it be. Uh, it, it is at least a moment of awakening. It's the way John the Baptist comes in and and uh, and slams into conventional religiosity and calls everybody's attention to something deeper, you see. So this is this, this figure has a has a forerunner quality to it. Uh, and John the Baptist announces the need for metanoia, a new a change of, of mind and heart. 
But what's funny, you see here, is that it says uh, the pattern seemed from Parker's distance to be a single intricate design of brilliant color. But the truth is that Parker was standing way back at the back of the tent. <laughs> the point is, the point is that these figures who that that are presented to us by popular culture are presented to us as as uh, integrated and of a piece, you know, cut from whole cloth and marvelously uh, intricate figures. And uh, we and we see them on the television and on the magazine covers and. They are presented to us as models, but we're near the back of the tent, and from where that we are, it looks like a coherent thing. But if we were up closer, we might we might see what it costs. And I want to call attention to this: this man flexing his muscles. Uh, it appeared as though the arabesque of men, beasts, and flowers on his skin were in a subtle motion of its own. Now, I want to keep in mind the arabesque of men, beasts, and flowers. Parker had never before felt the least emotion of wonder in himself. Until he saw the man at the fair, he did, it did not enter his head that there was anything out of the ordinary about the fact that he existed. Even then, it did not enter his head, but a peculiar unease settled in him. So it was, it, the unease was that uh, his there's something to be done. The unease is that I'm not what I should be. And then it says, it was as if a blind boy had been turned so gently, remember conversion means turn, had been turned so gently in a different direction that he did not know his destination had been changed. He had his first tattoo sometime after, the eagle perched on the cannon. Well, he quit school, uh, worked only to earn enough money to get more tattoos, and so becomes a mania, see, becomes a fixation. Uh, he attracted girls and was attracted uh, to them, girls that weren't attracted to him before. He got in fights, he drank beer, his mother was distressed at the direction his life had taken. So she took him to a revival one night, not telling him where he was going. And when they entered the big lighted church, he bolted and ran away and joined the Navy the next day. Uh, so the, the Navy is where you can get more tattoos. The church is not, you see. <laughs> uh, he was faced with two sort of uh, ominous institutions, uh, one of which understood tattoos and one of which did not, one of which was a big and well-lighted uh, compared to where he had been anyway, uh, and he joined the, the Navy. After a month or two in the Navy, his mouth ceased to hang open. Now, is that progress or not? I, <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about it myself. <laughs> you know, people say, well, you know, the, the Army made him grow up or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Give me somebody with their mouth hanging open any day. <laughs> well, I don't I have mixed feelings, as I say. But in any case, after a month or two, his mouth ceased to hang open. And in a way, you see, his, his imagination, his childlikeness, uh, it begins to, to dry up or recede. 
He spent five years in the Navy uh, until, in fact, he seen the natural part of the gray mechanical ship. So it looks like this kid's going to get uh, sort of incorporated into, it, despite despite the spiritual stirrings, it looks like he's going to be incorporated into uh, the, the uh, standard American enterprise uh, without too much difficulty. It says he had become a natural, uh, a natural part of the gray mechanical ship, except for his eyes, which were the same pale slate color as the ocean and reflected immense spaces around him, as if they were a microcosm of the mysterious sea. Now, that means that he had, be he had become part of the gray mechanical surroundings, except there's something in his eyes still that is mystery. But as before, he has nothing in his environment to help him fathom that mystery. The next sentence is, in port, Parker wandered about comparing the rundown places he was to Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> no sense of what to do with that mystery in his eyes. Everywhere he went, he picked up more tattoos. He stopped having lifeless ones, however, like anchors and crossed rifles. He had a tiger and a panther on each shoulder, a cobra curled about a torch on his chest, hawks on his thighs, Elizabeth II and Philip over where his stomach and liver were, respectively. He did not, not, he did not care much what the subject was, as long as it was colorful. On his abdomen, he had a few obscenities, but only because that seemed the proper place for him. Parker would be satisfied with each tattoo for about a month. Then something about it that had attracted him would wear off. Now this is the essential feature of the drug culture. You see, we think of the drug culture as, because it's pharmacological, we think of it as distinct from the rest of the culture. But if you eliminate the, the, the pharmacology, it blends right in. Uh, and that's why this is really a story about us all. It's what, or it's, it's like Jim Thane said about Washington. You know, it's whatever, uh, it's whatever unshakable truth ha happens to be having uh, its its momentary day in the sun. Uh, and then next week or next month, or if you're Andy Warhol, next 15 minutes, it's something else. 